I used to tell, tell my guys, like, hey, you got to remember that, you know, a bullet fired from the AK-47 of a nine-year-old kid will kill a 30-year-old Navy SEAL just as fast as any other bullet, right? And it has no, and that there's no bearing on how tough and strong you are, what training you've been. We have to be cognizant of that fact. And I really believe that evolution as, as human beings has to, part of that evolution has to come with a change in identity. And you can take an identity and you can put it on the shelf. I don't say, I'm not saying throw it down the trash, but I'm saying put it on the shelf and honor and respect it and be grateful for it. But to, part of changing identity is also to detach yourself from the opinions and the perceived judgments of others, right? And just do what you feel is right in your heart and your being. Guys, thank you so much for joining. I'm Scott Radford, and this is the Performance Hackers. And on today's episode, along with a couple of others, I get the real privilege of teaming up and co-hosting the session with good mate and former Fast Jet and Red Arrows pilot Dan Lowe's to, yes, have a little bit of fun, but to also see if we can really maximize the value from these discussions. So I can't wait. No more mucking around. Let's get to it. Rich, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being here. Thanks, guys. It's a pleasure to be here. So thanks for having me. Now, I listened to your story on a few other podcasts, read the book, and I'm absolutely amazed of everything you've achieved in the military sense and also on your transition out. So I can't wait to uh, tell the whole story. But I'd love to begin on a little bit of your origin story into what made you go into the Navy SEALs or what sparked your interest to uh, set you off on that path. Well, it started kind of like you. I was an aviation buff. My dad was a private pilot. He co-owned a, a small single engine airplane with a with a partner of his. And, and so he used to take my brothers and my sister and I flying on the weekends. And, and my twin brother and I were hooked from the beginning. We just loved it. And so we were like, we needed to fly like fast jets, you know. And so the only two places to do that were the, either Air Force or Navy. One of our older cousins was a Navy pilot, and also we and so we we knew about the Navy that you got to take off and land on ships. We were like, yeah, that's pretty cool. That's pretty hard. You know, that'd be fun. And then, of course, we lived in Connecticut right on the coast, so we were also water rats. We loved the ocean. So the Navy became our singular focus, and that was like when we were six or seven years old, before Top Gun, right? I mean, so uh, Top Gun only made us want to be in the Navy even more. That was the bent, really. And then it was the first Gulf War, so in the early 90s, 1990, 91. And I was in high school, and I had read an article about U.S. Special Forces. And, and in this article, they outlined the Army Green Berets, the Navy SEALs, the Army Rangers, the Air Force folks, and the Marines, and things like that. And I just couldn't help but notice that the SEALs were like, they did everything. Like, they were in the air, they were in the water, they were snow, and they were kind of, they were in the desert, jungle. So they were everywhere, and they also were water based, right? So everything they did was like from the ocean, from the water. I was like, man, that's really cool. Because I love the water and all that stuff. So I started reading about them. And, you know, back then, there weren't a lot of things on the Navy SEALs. <laughs> you know, not a lot of people knew what, who they were or what they were. But I read as much as I could. I ended up going to college at uh, Purdue University in Indiana and entered into a Navy ROTC, which is kind of a college recruiting pipeline. So you're in college, you're part of this ROTC program, and then you do a bunch of things with the Navy. And then you get commissioned as an officer at, upon graduation. And so I was in this program. And when it came time to specialty select, I said to myself, I knew I could fly and I didn't want to be a pilot and wonder if I could be a Navy SEAL. So I, I decided to go SEALs and made it in and, and made it through training. And then the rest is history, you know, after, you know, spent 21 years in the teams. I love that. And part of the uh, process into becoming a Navy SEAL is uh, something called the Hell Week. And it reminds me of a quote from uh, James Allen's As a Man Thinketh that says, circumstance doesn't make the man, 
but reveals himself. I'd love for you to give us a little bit of an insight into that experience into Hell Week and maybe some of the biggest lessons that that experience revealed about yourself. Yeah, I mean, this is such a great segue into these hidden qualities. I mean, SEAL training is a little bit of a misnomer because in SEAL training, which is, you know, SEAL training is called BUDS, Basic Underwater Demolition Slash SEAL Training. It's six months long. The fifth week of SEAL training is Hell Week, and that's pretty much the real crucible inside of which most guys quit. I mean, that's where you start on a Sunday afternoon, and you go all the way until the following Friday uh, afternoon, and you only get two hours of sleep the whole week. And they basically make you do as many physical things as you, they possibly can think of. You're freezing, you're sandy, you're wet, you're, I mean, it's miserable. So you get the most attrition during Hell Week. And it's kind of the, and Hell Week is really, it's the one thing that's remained constant about SEAL training since it was first created back in the 40s for, or during World War II. Uh, Draper Kaufman, who created the first NCDUs, uh, Naval Combat Demolition Units, he recognized he was basically looking to create a unit that could swim ashore prior to an amphibious invasion, identify all the obstacles, dive down, tie explosives to the obstacles, and blow a path clear for the, for the naval amphibious invasion. And also, in some cases, go across the beach and, and frustrate and agitate the enemies. So he knew that he needed guys who didn't only know how to blow things up. He needed guys who could think quickly, think on their feet, because these guys were swimming and all they had on them were, you know, swim trunks, fins and some demolition. I mean, it was like only the officer got to carry a pistol. Everybody else just, you know, was, you know, basically they're called the naked warriors, right? He knew that these guys needed to be adaptable and think on their feet and be resilient and have all these different qualities, hidden qualities. And so he said, I'm going to start my training with the hardest week I can possibly imagine and basically put this first group of guys through the very first hell week and had about a 90% attrition rate. But he knew that 10% were the guys he knew had what it took, right? And so you kind of fast forward that to SEAL training today. And and in certainly my SEAL training, I went through SEAL training and and spent hundreds of hours carrying heavy boats on my head and hundreds of hours exercising with 300-pound telephone poles on my shoulder and things like that and freezing in the surf zone. And then I kind of indexed that against my 20 plus years as a SEAL. I did hundreds of combat missions overseas in Iraq and Afghanistan. And I can tell you, never on one of them did I carry a boat on my head or a heavy telephone <laughs> yeah. pole on my shoulder, right? So when they say SEAL training, it's not really training you to be a SEAL. They're not training you with the things, the skills that you think you need to be a SEAL, like shooting and scuba diving. They're putting you into these environments to tease out these hidden qualities, these attributes. And so, you know, James Allen's quote is really quite revealing here because it reveals the person, right? It's because these attributes show up when times are tough, when when the environment is unknown, uncertain. That's when these qualities start to come to the fore. And so that's what really got me interested in these qualities, especially when I was later on in my career running specific SEAL selection course where I had to really start to explain why guys were making it, why guys weren't making it. And it came down to these qualities, these attributes. Which is a, another famous quote I've heard attached to Hell Week, that if you're thinking about Friday on Sunday, you'll never make it. What can people do with the process that you've gone into that week with your mindset that people can use in day-to-day life, not on such an extreme level? One of the attributes that every Navy SEAL has called compartmentalization. It's, a, it's one of the mental acuity attributes. And it's, it's the ability to basically look at a situation, uh, look at all the information around you, Based on your current objective, right, whatever you're currently up to, immediately assess what's relevant, prioritize that list, and then focus on what you need to focus on. And when you focus on that, block out everything else, right? Compartmentalization allows you to do that. And if you're, if you're high on compartmentalization, you can do that quite rapidly, and you can do that in quite miserable situations. And so what that means is when we are moving through challenging environments, 
it's often overwhelming if we think about the, the end state. When we can't see the end or the end is past the horizon, to think about it is overwhelming. This is another way to say this is eating the elephant one bite at a time, right? And what this is, is basically eating the elephant one bite at a time, but neurologically, okay? And what you're doing is you're basically asking yourself in a situation, you're saying, okay, based on everything that's going on right now and the misery of this, what can I actually control right now? What can I focus on and control? And whatever that is, you choose it and then you move towards it. Now, that, that decision, that choice might be like in front of your face or it might be a little bit down the road. So in the Navy SEAL case, right, if I'm freezing in the surf zone, and I'm miserable, it might be, hey, I'm just going to focus on counting to 10, right? And then as soon as I hit 10, I've just accomplished a goal. And neurologically, we actually, in fact, get rewarded for that. We get a dopamine hit, okay? Which means I can ask the question again, okay, now what can I focus on? There were times I remember in SEAL training running with our boats on our head, and uh, it felt like we'd been doing it forever, and I was just miserable. And I said, you know what? I'm just gonna f and we'd be running on the beach next to these big sand berms, right? And I remember saying to myself, okay, I'm just going to focus on getting to the end of this berm. That's all I'm going to focus on. And that's what I did. And I just basically went to the end of the berm. And then I got to the end of the berm. I was like, okay, that's done. Now what do I focus on? I'm going to focus on getting there, whatever. I just kept on moving that focus. That is yeah. neuro the neurological equivalent of eating the, the elephant one bite at a time. So we can all do this as human beings in, in any endeavor that we're in. And the, the recommendation I would have is if you're an endeavor that is really enormous, I mean, it's too big to comprehend or too big to see the end of, then you have to take it in bite-sized chunks. Because if you think about the enormity of the task, you'll likely lose faith. You'll quit. In the Hell Week sense, that's why that saying is that saying, right? If you think about Friday on Monday, you will quit because you just don't do it. You know, that's too, it's Friday is too far away. I remember, I remember it being like Wednesday and not thinking about Friday. Because even on Wednesday, Friday is too far away, right? So you're just going. It sounds like 11, 11 seconds is too far away sometimes, I guess. In some cases, right? In some cases. You know, I don't know if, you, if you're both familiar with ice tub, ice baths, right? Love it. Absolutely, um, yeah. So I do this a lot because I, I like it. I think, A, there's obviously health benefits to it. But this is also a way you can practice this game, right? Ice baths, as we know, are very uncomfortable. And you think, oh, you're a Navy SEAL. You're used to cold. No, you never get used to cold, right? The ice baths always hurt. <laughs> okay, they're always hard. Especially, I keep mine at around 38 degrees. So getting into 38 degree water is tough, right? But you can actually practice this stuff. And I, I remember I do it, but I put my son in there because he wanted to. I put my wife in there because she wanted to. And I said, okay, when we do this, as you get in, we're going to pick a goal and we're going to focus on that goal, right? And I, at that point, I said, okay, stare at my hand and count to 10, right? One, two, three. And then, okay, now we're done. Pick something else and do that, right? And pick something else. And slowly you walk yourself through these micro moments. And if you take these micro steps, every step you take is a closer step towards uh, reaching your objective. And so eventually you, you get there or eventually you get to a place where if you're almost at the end. The enormity is not as difficult a bite to take. So I think that's kind of a way to describe that. So maybe people listening to this could take that advice and in the morning, their first challenge of the day could be at the end of their shower, just turning it fully cold, get through that first 10 seconds. That's the first goal yes. achieved for the day. Yes. And I will just say, I don't awesome. like cold showers. I do, the, I do the chili dip, but I hate the showers because <laughs> yeah. I actually, I'd rather be fully immersed in the cold than have the cold just hit one side. But yeah, I mean, that's the way to do it. You don't have to be as extreme as even a cold shower. You can do this in any endeavor that you feel like is a little bit overwhelming. It could be a project at work. It'd be a long meeting. It could be whatever. Just say, you know what? I'm just going to focus on a horizon that I can manage right now and do that. And I think most of us as human beings have actually done this at one time or another. It really depends on how often we've done it. I've often thought about what in my past equipped me with the ability to do this so effectively that I would made it through SEAL training. And what's interesting is I thought about it 
I remembered when I was a kid, my dad used to, he didn't like running the heat in the house. We had a, we had a fireplace. So he'd order big piles of wood and have them delivered to our house into our driveway. And of course, it was my brother and my job to move the wood from the driveway up to the front of the house. There were two ways you could go. The, the shortest way was basically up these stairs and then to, and then you're at the front of the house within maybe 50 yards. The problem is going up the stairs, you can only carry like two or three logs and you have to walk it, right? If you wanted to wheelbarrow, you know, loads of wood, you had to basically go the other way, which is go all the way around the house up a hill to get to the front. And so that was obviously our choice. And I remember us doing this and we never, ever looked at the whole pile. Never, ever did we say, oh my God, this is a huge pile. We just basically loaded a wheelbarrow. We rolled it up the hill. We unloaded it. We came back. We loaded it under the wheelbarrow. We, I mean, we just went wheelbarrow by wheelbarrow by wheelbarrow. I mean, just one load at a time until finally, at one point, you look up, you're like, okay, cool. Now it's, it's small enough to kind of see the end. But if we had done that before, anytime we looked at that pile too early, it was devastating. <laughs> but I think that was, that, was, that was basically some grit training right there. That was, the, that was this training. And I think anybody can kind of think about times in their past where they may have chunked out an environment so that they could get through it more appropriately and, and in a faster way and, and just use that. Because obviously, when you're a young kid and you're doing that naturally, people would say, yeah, but compartmentalization is obviously something that you've naturally had. And actually, what you're saying is that it wasn't like a natural ability. It was something that you trained yourself to do. You, you actually recognized maybe later that you were doing it. But it's something that people can develop these attributes and not just nature versus nurture, isn't it? It's the age old thing. It's true. And I think, you know, obviously people show up here with some, with higher levels of some attributes and lower levels of other attributes. But ultimately, we all have all the attributes. And every human being is designed to be gritty. Every human being is designed to be an endurance creature. That's how we're, that's how nature has designed us. So we all have this ability. The question is, how often have we used it? Um, how natural is it for us to use it? Because, for example, if we don't show up as high on some of these things, we may not steer ourselves into environments that tease it out very often. I'm fairly high on adaptability, right? Which means when the environment changes around me outside of my control, I can, it's fairly easy for me to go with the flow, right? Someone else might be a level three or something on adaptability, which means the same thing happens to them. It's difficult for them. It's a painful process to go with the flow, right? They're still adaptable. Well, that person, if they want to become more adaptable, they're going to have to go deliberately seek environments that test and tease their adaptability, right? Um, and have to recognize the fact that if you're someone who's shown up and they're not, and they're, you're lower on the adaptability scale, you've likely designed your daily life so that you haven't had to be adaptable. You've likely designed it with structure so that you're not testing that, which means any of the attributes we're low on, we've likely designed a life that doesn't really access those attributes as much. And if we want to develop that, we're going to have to step outside our comfort zone. Yeah. You've mentioned a couple of attributes now, but you've mentioned one in particular a couple of times, and that's grit. Your book is about 25 different attributes. Are all of the attributes created equal or are some more proven to be essential to success? Yeah, what a great question. I don't know if I'm qualified to judge whether or not they're all equal or which ones are more important than other ones, because I think the context of someone's life experience and their life challenges would indicate which are more important. However, I won't dodge the question fully. <laughs> I will say that the, <laughs> Thank the, you. the grit attribute, when I talk about grit, it's not an attribute. Grit is a category inside of which. So grit is the result of certain attributes blended and catalyzed together, which is what I talk about in the book. And those attributes in this case are courage, adaptability, perseverance, and resilience. Those four attributes combine and bake together to have the result of grit, right? And again, grit is speaking to our ability to push through those kind of acute challenges, you know, the short-term burst, you know, kind of persevere type stuff. 
I would say that in the human experience, those grit attributes are probably the most important. And I would say that only because that's kind of what has made us the survival creatures that we are, right? Courage, perseverance, adaptability, and resilience. Those four things are very fundamental in our ability to just make it through on a day-to-day basis. The other stuff, I think you can waver a little bit. Your mental acuity attributes, you don't have to be very high on those. You can still make it. I mean, you don't have to be a very driven person, especially nowadays, maybe back in the, maybe a few thousand years ago you did, but nowadays you don't have to be very driven to survive, right? And then leadership and team ability, they're just okay. But I mean, everything about life is going to take at some point some courage, some perseverance, some adaptability and resilience. And so I think those four, if I were to be forced to quantify or qualify those, I'd say those are probably the most important. You talk about attributes versus skills. Can you explain the difference to them and why it's important that we understand there's a difference between them? Yeah, that's that's a good thing to kind of level the bubble here. So when I was doing this work, I kind of discovered this when I was running a very specialized selection and training course inside of the SEAL teams for one of, for a specific SEAL command. And, and what I had to do was I had to better articulate why certain guys were making it and why certain guys weren't making it. And to do so, I had to basically look at performance. And what I recognized when we looked at performance was that we were judging performance in a very linear way. We were judging it based on skills only. And kind of like I said earlier about the, you know, never having carried a boat on my head on a mission, right? In SEAL training, they aren't really training you in those linear skills to be a SEAL, at least not not right away. And so I said to myself, okay, what's the difference? And, and it ended up being, hey, there's skills and there's attributes. And even though they could get conflated a lot, they're inherently different things. And so skills are they can be described as not inherent to our nature, right? None of us are born with the ability to ride a bike or throw a ball or or drive a car, right? We learn how to do those things. We can be taught how to do those things and we can train to do those things. Skills direct our behavior in known specific environments. So here's how and when to ride a bike. Here's how and when to throw a ball or drive a car, okay? And then because they're very visible and didactic, they're very easy to see and therefore easy to measure and assess and test. And and you can put scores around them and stats around them, and you can see how well anybody does any one of those things. This is why, by the way, we get seduced by them when we are building teams or hiring people, because they're so easy, right? They're like, oh, I can see that. I can see the best sales numbers. I can see whatever those skills are. The problem with skills is they don't tell us how we're gonna show up in stress, challenge, and uncertainty, and when the environment becomes unknown. In an unknown environment, it's very difficult, if not impossible, to apply a known skill, right? This is when we lean on our attributes. Attributes, on the other hand, are elemental. We're actually all born with levels of adaptability, patience, situational awareness, resilience, okay? Now, certainly they can develop over time and experience, right? We just talked about that. But you can see levels of this stuff in small children, right? They're inherent to us. They don't direct our behavior. They inform our behavior, right? So our levels of attributes inform the way we show up. My son's levels of resilience and perseverance informed the way he showed up when he was learning the skill of riding a bike. And he was falling off a dozen times doing so, right? So the informer behavior. And then because they're hidden in the background, they're hard to see, they're very difficult to assess, measure, and test. You can't sit across the table in an interview process for a new hire and assess how resilient they are or how patient they are, how adaptable they are, right? So they show up the most visibly, again, during times of challenge, uncertainty, and stress. So this is why the the laboratory I had inside of SEAL training was so great because everything about SEAL training is challenging, right? And stressful. In terms of performance, we have to understand that our personal performance, And our team's performance are largely reliant on the attributes that we bring to the table, right? Sure, skills matter to a degree, but if we want to know how we're going to show up as people when the times get tough, right, or as teams when the times get tough, 
we have to start looking at these attributes. We have to see how we all stack up, how the team stacks up, and are we indexing what we need for the needs of the team? You know, I think just looking from one of the biggest misconceptions, I think, not just in high performance, but just in general adult life is that people always say, you know, what what skills have you got? These transferable skills that we can move into different careers and all the rest of it. And actually, high performers don't look at what skills they have and look at transferring those. They look at the skills that they need to go and acquire. And they do that having attributes that allow themselves to look at that. That's right. And, and I think I think one of the reasons why that happens, too, is because skills and attributes get conflated. I mean, people think of, oh, uh, you know, patience is a skill. No, patience is not a skill. So here's a quick kind of back of the envelope test to determine whether or not it's an attribute or a skill. OK, and that's to ask the question, can I teach it or can it be taught? All right. If the answer is yes, it's probably a skill. If the answer is no, it's probably an attribute. So the example would be you say, Rich, we want to go, uh, we want to learn how to shoot a pistol and hit a bullseye every time, right? Well, I could take both of you out to the range and teach you how to do that within about an hour and a half, okay? That is a skill, all right? Or you say to me, Rich... You've um, obviously not we- seen me shooting before. <laughs> okay, maybe, maybe two and a half hours, who knows? Um, or you both could say, hey, Rich, we want to be more patient, right? Well, I can't teach you how to be more patient, right? So to develop an attribute, kind of like I said before, it takes self-motivation, self-direction, and it takes a willingness for that individual to deliberately step into environments of discomfort that test and tease that attribute. So if you want to be more patient, you got to go find environments that test and tease your patients. And so the two get confused and conflated. And then the other misunderstanding that a lot of people have is that you can train attributes into people, and you can't. Unless that person wants to deliberately develop an attribute, you can't train somebody to be patient. You can't train somebody to be adaptable. They have to make that choice, right? So This is why if we understand this, we can actually hire and put together teams based around attributes, and then we can always train skills, right? So there's an old story about SEAL training. It was before I ever showed up, but you used to have to show up, and and as soon as you got there, the first thing you had to do was do a 50-meter swim in the pool, right? And so this kid shows up, and it's his turn to go, and he jumps into the pool. He sinks to the bottom. He walks to the uh, one side of the pool, and then walks walks back to the other side. He comes up and he's like almost dying from, you know, not breathing. And the instructor looks at him and is like, what the hell were you doing? And the kid looks at the instructor and says, instructor, was so-and-so, I, I don't know how to swim. And the instructor looks at him and says, oh, shit, we'll teach you how to swim, right? Because the instructor knew that if this guy had the cojones to show up to SEAL training not knowing how to swim, he had all the attributes they were looking for. We could always teach him the skill, right? We can always teach you how to swim. We can always teach you how to shoot. We can always teach you how to skydive, right? as long as you have the attributes we're looking for. So that's why the attributes are so important. Rich, one of the biggest attributes, I guess, we plant with Navy SEALs and other people in those high-pressure, high-stakes environments is courage. And Mm -hmm. you've obviously been through an experience of not just the training, but the actual doing that has developed your courage over time. Can you talk just a little bit more about how that attribute was developed? Because obviously, in high performance, courage is one of the most important habits or attributes that you can have. How can people start to think of that and develop that in their own lives? There's a reason why I put courage at the top of the grid attributes as well, because I think courage is probably, if I were forced to say so, it's probably the most important attribute that, uh, that we have as human beings. And the reason is because courage is literally the ability to step into our fear. So courage as an attribute is more about where we show up on the scale. So we become afraid, our amygdala starts getting, you know, getting teased and our amygdala uh, response starts to heighten. And, and if we, in the, in the extreme case, we go into what's called amygdala hijack, which means our, our conscious mind comes completely offline and we just act without thinking. 
or and then that action could be I'm running away, I'm fighting, or I'm fainting, right? You know, so it's a ca- kind of, classic fight or flight response. Yeah, yeah, totally. And that's done without us thinking. Okay, that's a that's luckily that doesn't happen a lot in today's world. Okay. But when it does, that's a bad thing because in most risky or high-risk environments, you want to be able to think your way through them. But let's just talk about what happens. So our amygdala begins to get upgraded or tickled, and we are we are given this choice of fight or flight. Okay. Now there's been a lot of talk about the freeze option, but what they found is neurologically that freeze option is really just an oscillation between the two. It's it's basically a decision point: Am I going to fight or am I going to flee? Based on whatever you choose, there's actually two separate circuits that gets, get flipped in the, in the brain. If you choose to flee, it's one circuit. If you choose to fight, which means step into your fear, it's another circuit. When you choose to fight, i.e. step into your fear, when that circuit gets flipped, you get a dopamine reward for that, right? That is the courage switch, right? So, so it tells us a couple things. First of all, it tells us that courage cannot exist without fear, okay? If fear is not present, neither is courage. You can't access that switch. And then it also tells us that when you actually decide to step into your fear and use that switch, you get a reward for it, right? And you actually feel good because of it. And that allows you to actually do it again and again and again if, if you're conscious about that activity. This is how and why humans have evolved the way we've evolved, right? We're, we were discovery, we've been discovery creatures. We're endurance creatures. We go out, we look for the unknown, we seek the unknown, okay? It's because we get rewarded in doing so. And so wherever you fall on the courage scale, in terms of the attribute where you fall can be described as how how quickly your amygdala gets tickled, okay? So in other words, if we were to set the average amygdala boiling point at you know, 212, right? Some people, they go over the edge at like 195. They just get scared faster, okay? Some people, they don't go over the edge until like 225. It just takes a lot longer for them to go over that edge. So, so where we fall on that scale is where we fall on that attribute. However, wherever you fall on that scale, you can in fact practice courage, right? And the, the way you, of course, the way you do it is not, is not going to be fun, right? But you have to step into your fear. And again, fear is subjective, okay? What makes one person afraid is going to be different for another person, right? So it doesn't, ha- and it doesn't have to be extreme, right? You don't have to go skydiving or bungee jumping. It could be, hey, I'm going to start up a conversation with a stranger. I'm going to a cocktail party and I'm going to talk to three people out of, you know, I'm just going to start conversations with three people. That could be terrifying for some people, right? Doing that, stepping into that is actually going to be rewarded, right? So you can practice these little acts of courage, actually just practice flipping that switch and seeing how it feels. And despite your history of being US Navy SEAL, do you still find yourself having to act out courage? The fear that still comes into your life on just oh, simple yeah, because, because like that? Yeah, because it's subjective, right? And, and you don't, and so, so this is the other problem with fear and courage training, right? You, you can't, you can inoculate yourself by doing something over and over again. In other words, uh, I don't like heights, right? So, so I used to, you know, so skydiving was always an issue for me, but I, I stepped through it. But there used to be a 65 foot cargo net that in our, uh, you know, all the SEAL bases always had obstacle courses. And Every obstacle course had in one of its obstacles a 65-foot cargo net that you just basically, it's really simple. You climb up one side, you flip over the top, and then you climb down the other side, right? But for someone who doesn't like heights, that's quite an evolution, right? And so I used to plan my runs, so every run I would pass this cargo net, and I'd climb up it, up it, right? And when I climb up it, I'd just basically sit at the top. And is it maybe if I hadn't done it for a while, I'd maybe sit at the top for maybe a second or two, right? But then I'd get to the point where I'd sit at the top for like 10 seconds, maybe 30 seconds, and and slowly, I'd inoculate myself from that fear. I would stop being afraid, okay? But guess what also happened? 
I stopped feeling good about it too, because as soon as I stopped being afraid, the courage switch turns off too, you know? And so you can inoculate yourself by doing something over and over again, but it doesn't necessarily transfer contexts, right? So just because I inoculated myself on the cargo net doesn't necessarily mean that skydiving wasn't as scary. And it also doesn't necessarily mean that starting a conversation was as scary. So fear will always be present. And you can, tr you can practice that courage switch by trying different things that you're afraid of. But you can certainly inoculate yourself by doing something over and over again. That's what I had to do when I started, you know, I got out of the Navy and I began to speak in front of people. And I, so I was teaching classes and I, was, and I hated it. I really did. I did not like, I was nervous every time. And I said to myself, well, that's something I should probably conquer. And so I just did it over and over again. And sure enough, slowly, I got better and better at it. And so nowadays, I don't really have a problem going on stage, right? But it's, uh, it's constantly present. And fear needs to be, by the way. I mean, fear is actually a purposeful feeling, right? Fear is our risk assessment gauge uh, as a human being, right? We, it, those who are fearless stay away from those people, okay? The mm -hmm. I, was, I was told as a young officer, beware the fearless leader because that person's going to get you killed, right? Fear is supposed to make us take pause and assess risk, okay? If you don't have it, you are going to take the bulldog approach and probably run into the, into the gun blaze with, with zero body armor and you'll get killed pretty quickly. So, so you want to have fear. You just want to understand that it's there for a reason. Working through it is rewarding and it's a good chance to do appropriate risk assessment. Fear, obviously, as highly trained people, your Navy SEAL, Dan, ex-fast jet pilot, me pilot, we all have maybe a fear at the beginning. And like you said, through training, through exposure, we inoculate ourselves to it. Did you have a fear when you were leaving the Navy SEALs of any judgment from peers or anything like that? Yeah, what a great question. So the honest answer is always going to be yes, because every one of us is always hold in regard the opinions of our peers, okay? Mm. However, there's a logic train that has to be walked on that for people who are leaving that type of profession and asking themselves, what are they going to do next? And part of that logic train is to understand that there are people in our professions, whether it be flying or special operations, who are always going to believe that any type of talking about what you did is wrong. And no matter what you do, even if you write a children's book, you're like, okay, screw you, we don't like you. Okay, so, so you have to immediately discount those people because okay? they're haters and they probably don't read the books. They, they, I always say haters don't read anyway, right? So, so don't worry about those people. Um, and then you say, say to yourself, okay, um, what's in my mind is a responsible way to actually do this so that I feel like I'm doing the right thing? Because... You're no longer in that community. And I really believe that evolution as, as human beings has to, part of that evolution has to come with a change in identity. And you can take an identity and you can put it on the shelf. I don't say, I'm not saying throw it down the trash, but I'm saying put it on the shelf and honor and respect it and be grateful for it. But to, part of changing identity is also to detach yourself from the opinions and the perceived judgments of others, right? And just do what you feel is right in your heart and your being. So that's really the calculus that I did. I think when I did it, I mean, I, you've read the book, so you know that my book is really not a SEAL book. So I'm someone who, I don't really talk about SEAL missions. I really don't. I probably only talked about a couple of them. And that was only in, in the cases of where I felt like the people I was talking to really could derive value from what I was talking about. It wasn't about me doing this mission. It was really, I was really, how can I, how does this story provide value to the person who's listening to it? So I just had a couple of rules for myself that made me say, okay, I think I'm doing this in a good way. 
and then you just do it. It is certain, you know, that there are guys out there who say, yeah, Rich Devine is a sellout, right? Because he wrote a book and he's out there talking about SEAL stuff. And first of all, I guarantee I'm not going to change their mind. I also guarantee they haven't read the book. <laughs> and I guarantee I shouldn't care about it, right? <laughs> you yeah. know, but... Um, but I would say, you know, all of that to say, you know, those those SEAL buddies of mine who and, and guys who and even guys in the teams I didn't know who've actually read the book and they've actually contacted me and said, hey, this is a great book. I'm, I'm having my kids read it. It's one of the best books I've read from a former military. That really feels good. So so you try to deliberately put aside those people, uh, you know, the haters, and then just say, listen, so people are finding value on this. Uh, part of me doesn't care anymore. Yeah, I think that answer is going to really help a lot of people listening to this. Uh, I know yeah. for sure. So thanks for that. Can I ask about purpose, which I think attaches to that? And I'd imagine over you know, your 20 years service or 20 plus years service, I should say, your 13 operational deployments, the fact you went on to run US Navy SEAL training, like your purpose was not to be good, it was to be great. And so when you left and you've had that identity shift, did you feel you also had to realign your purpose? Well, I want to I'm going to correct you because because it wasn't for me my purpose is never really to be I mean to be great but in a certain context. I you know my, for me greatness is providing value to other people, right? I don't have to be I've never I am in, again in the book I talk about competitive versus non-competitive, right? And and I have never been competitive, okay? I'm just not wired that way. I used to play uh lacrosse in high school and I was in fact captain of my team. Right. And, you know, we win or winning or losing never emotionally moved me. Right. I'd see guys like they were just irate if we lost and they were over the moon if we won. And I kind of I'd pretend to be that way because I didn't want to feel weird. But it never really I liked I liked the game because of the sticks, you know, the teamwork and the, the stick skills. And I just thought it was a cool game. So I've never been competitive that way. I've always been someone who thinks about things. Okay, how can how can we how can we do something differently? How can we go around the rules? I don't need to compete. I have no interest in competing which has made me not really think of my success in a competitive way. I'm just kind of like, hey, I love the idea of helping people, providing value, and especially deconstructing ideas and concepts that may be unrelatable to certain people and make them relatable to, uh, to, to as many people as possible, mm -hmm. i.e., how can I explain, how can I, how can I let people know not how Navy SEALs are better than everybody else, how can I tell people how Navy SEALs are the same as everybody else? Right? That's where I come from. In that purpose, I would say that's never changed. Even when I was in the teams doing the work as training officer, or even when I was commanding officer, I was always looking for ways to do things differently. And, uh, and the troops that I was in charge of and even the squadrons that I was in charge of, we generally generated reputations of people who really did things <laughs> that, that people kind of, oh, wait, that's completely different. And I was always, that always kind of really juiced me up. So I think it's, for me, it's always been about that. And I think ultimately, I think this is another thing, Scott, that will probably help people listening is, is where do you place your identity? By, by the way, so I think my next book is going to be about identity because I have so many ideas on this. But one of, the one of the concepts is this idea that we, in fact, collect identities as we go through life, right? And whatever those are, is like this high school, this university, this military, you know, I'm a pilot, I'm a SEAL, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a whatever, okay? Uh, I, mean, I could be you know, a Harley Davidson guy. Right. Whatever those identities are, we collect those and we will always serve primarily the one we prioritize the highest. Right. That's the one that we'll, we will serve the most and, and really also get emotionally moved by the most. Right. So what this tells us is we actually actually look at the identities we have. And for me, even when I was a SEAL, I was a Navy SEAL, but my top identity was a husband and father. That was my number one identity. That was always what I put wow. above everything else. Right. 
Now, the Navy, as you guys both know, the, the military will sometimes say, no, 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 your primary is, is a SEAL, so you're coming with us, right? So, But psychologically, that was always number one. And so for me, getting out of the SEAL teams, yes, you, you certainly feel like, oh, man, that's that's like, uh, you know, that's a big chunk of my life that's now missing. But I still have my wife. I still have my kids. And so anchoring ourselves in an identity that really is very meaningful and powerful and saying, this is it. If I have nothing else, I have this. That can be a good grounding element. And ultimately, what we put on our tombstone, right? On my tombstone, I want loving husband and father. That's all I want. Right? You know, that's, that's all I need, really. But I think that's a, that's a concept, too. Yeah. And one of your new identities, a published author, the book, yeah. The Attributes, The 25 Drivers of Optimal Performance, which I found an awesome read. It's, as you say, covers a lot of stuff we've talked about. But one thing I want to ask there, it's in the title, Optimal Performance. Mm-hmm. Can you explain optimal versus peak performance? I think it's very important to understand the differences. Absolutely. Yeah, this is a quandary I found myself in quite often when people were talking to me about peak performance. And the question was, like, how can we be peak performers? How can we peak here, peak there, peak everywhere? You SEALs are the ultimate peak performance. And what I really recognized and had to relate to people is that peak is just an apex. That's all it is. And we're, there's only one place you can go from an apex, and that's down. And peak has to be often prepared for, scheduled, planned, right? The the pro football player, U.S. or Europe, <laughs> you know, whatever flavor of football we're talking, uh, <laughs> p- plans and schedules his entire week so that he may peak for that game. That's when he wants to peak, right? Well, regular life is not that way. I guarantee you that pro football player is not peaking driving to the grocery store. You can't be peak all the time, right? And so what we are really and what SEALs are are optimal performers. And optimal performance means... How can I do the very best I can in the moment, whatever the best looks like in that moment? Okay, so sometimes our best looks like peak and this flow states and all that stuff, cool, fun, sexy stuff. Sometimes our best is I am just head down, grinding it out. I'm, all, I have, I, all I can do is step by step and it's dirty, it's ugly, it's painful, it's miserable, but I'm just making movement, right? That is also optimal performance. I'm doing the best I can. And so as humans in life and in any business we're in, any, in, in any endeavor that's longer than a short period of time, we have to look at energy this way. We have to say, hey, I have to manage my energy in ways that allow me to perform optimally, right? I remember being in route to missions. We'd be in the helicopters, like flying into a mission, getting ready to get inserted into an uh, operation. And guys, I'd look around and some guys were sleeping. They were napping, right? Other guys were listening to music. Some guys were just chewing tobacco, right? And so people think they have this idea that Navy SEALs are like, it's like the beginning of a football game where you all look up like, raw, raw, yes, and you're getting all fired up, right? No, 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 because that uses too much energy. We always, always understand that we don't know how long this is going to last. We don't know what it's going to require, right? We are going to conserve energy when it's time to conserve energy. When it's time to give it everything you got, we'll give it everything we got, right? But we are not going to give one uh, watt of energy more than the situation in this, in this moment requires. So that means I can take a nap on the way in. That's what I'm going to do, right? And, and it's really a very powerful way to start looking at life holistically, I think. And to be honest with you, quite healthy. I think that's a really great point. And I think for me, going long haul was the first time that I thought you have to own your own energy levels throughout the day and throughout the week here. And even if that's from how do you want to come across in that first few minutes when you walk in the door at seven o'clock in the morning and your partner's just got up and she's not as tired as you are, she's just about to start her day. What sort of energy do you want to put out into the world then? but also in terms of managing uh, an operation like a flight, for instance. And I used to see the guys that were super, super chill. There was a saying, I don't know if it's a military saying as well, but you have to be good to be gash. And I think a lot of the guys that were phenomenal high performers as pilots that I flew with, 
They were always super chilled when they could be, when they could take the rest, they'd take it. When they could be relaxed and have a joke, they'd take it and they'd do it. Mm. And what they were doing is actually just having their capacity bucket empty or as low as possible for their entire time. And there's going to be times where your capacity bucket starts to fill up. But I see a lot of guys that they're they're walking through life with their capacity bucket already at 80% and they haven't got far to go if anything sort of trips them up throughout the day. So managing the energy levels is really interesting, a really, really uh, poignant part of my life for sure. Funny you should say that because you should see even even in athletics, I know I use an athletic example, but the best athletes in the world, whether they're football or baseball or basketball, they manage their energy even during the game, right? I mean, the, and so fighting is, I love fighting. It's a great example. And I don't, I'm not a fighter, right? But I just love, I think it's such a great environment inside of which all these attributes are exposed. But the best fighters you'll see modulating their energy even during a fight, right? Like in MMA or whatever, when it's like, it's like, you think this guy is like going all out all the time. No, no, you see them like resting a little bit when they can. So micro recovery moments, because they know when they have to go hard, they go, this is, it becomes a, a way of life. And I think this is what we have to start to model is this idea of optimal performance versus peak. Yeah. And I know as a passenger in the planes that you fly, Scott, I am, it's good for me to know that you are managing your energy properly. So thank you. <laughs> One of the other points that I think when it comes to managing energy, and you mentioned courage giving people a dopamine hit, and that is something that you can lead into, but humor gives a similar dopamine hit, right? And Dan and I talk all the time about taking the situation seriously, but not yourself, and the importance of humor in high performance. Can you talk a little bit about that? Because I know that you're an advocate for humor in high performance as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it's almost necessary, I think. And so what we have to understand about humor and laughing, okay, is, is a couple of things. First of all, laughing is involuntary. And it's involuntary, right? So it's like sneezing. We don't, when we actually do it, it's not something we can stop or help. We just do it, right? When it happens, we get juiced with three very powerful chemicals, two neurotransmitters and one hormone. Okay, tell you what, I'll tell you a story uh, from SEAL training. So in SEAL training, one of the things they make you do is an evolution called surf torture. Okay, surf torture is where they have you line up on the edge of the surf zone with all of your classmates, arm in arm, and you march out into the surf zone until it's about knee high. And then you turn around and you lay back. Okay, so you lay in the surf zone and the waves just basically crash over you. And then they recede and they crash over you and then they recede. It doesn't sound too bad. But in Southern California, when the water's, you know, in the 50s, and it's the, the wind is even colder, it is the coldest thing you've ever experienced, right? We get the most quitters during surf torture. And oftentimes, it's at night, they do it at night, and, and it's, just, it's just miserable. Almost every time, at some point, an instructor during that evolution, you do it many times during SEAL training, but at, at one point, the instructor, one of the instructors will drive a van up onto the beach, and he'll come out of the van with a megaphone, and he'll say, hey, I have hot chocolate and blankets and donuts for anybody who quits right now. I'd be and, all over that if they said hot chocolate. Yeah, and it's, it's like a survive. Yeah, so it's like, <laughs> it's a, like a survivor challenge, right? And so you get a lot of people quitting, right? Because it's very tempting. Okay, I remember that happening to us, and the guy to my right, immediately after the instructor says that, yells at the top of his lungs, he's like, hey, do you have any chocolate glazed donuts? Because if you don't, I'm not quitting. Okay, and I remember both of us burst out laughing. And I remember feeling, okay, this is, we'll be okay. That's what I felt. I really was like, aha, we'll be okay. Then I looked to my left, and the guy to my left is like stone-faced. He's not even, he didn't even, he's not even laughing. He didn't even hear the joke. He's just lost in his pain. And I said to myself, this guy's not going to make it, right? And certainly, sure enough, within a minute, that guy quit. So what happened there? Okay, so when we laugh, we get three chemicals. We get neurotransmitter dopamine, which we've already talked about. It's the, the chemical that tells us this is good, keep doing this. Okay, it's also, it's the root of all addictive behavior. Addictive behavior, we get dopamine hits because that behavior keeps on rewarding itself. Okay, so it's a very powerful chemical that tells us this is good, keep doing this. So we get dopamine. 
we get endorphins. Okay, endorphins are the human body's opiate. Again, they were studying the human brain on, on drug addiction in the late 60s, early 70s, and scientists found in the brain opiate receptors. And they were like, what the heck? Why the heck does the human brain have opiate receptors? And it's because the human body makes its own opiates. That's endorphins. Okay, endorphins mask our pain. Athletes have heard of runner's high. Okay. This is what causes us and allows us to be endurance creatures. Then we get a hormone called oxytocin, which is known as the love hormone. This is the bonding, binding chemical, right? We get this from physical contact with human beings. We get it from acts of generosity and kindness. It binds us and bonds us together, okay? So laughing bursts us with all three of those chemicals without us even wanting it to, okay? That's what it does, okay? So think about that surf zone. I'm freezing, I'm miserable, my body makes a joke, okay? I laugh, immediately I get dopamine. Hey, this is good, keep doing it. I get endorphins, this doesn't feel that bad and I get oxytocin, we're in this together. Laughter is so important for getting us through things. It is, I mean, I have never met a high-performing team, a true high-performing team, that doesn't have the ability to laugh when times are, are, are rough. In fact, in SEALs, it was probably one of the things I missed the most about the SEAL teams. We'd, we'd be in the most miserable environments and someone would crack a joke and we'd just start laughing. I have a buddy who, who, who told a story. They were, they were in a helicopter and the helicopter was starting to crash. The helicopter was going down. Okay. And one of the guys says, well, at least we're not going to have to clean our weapons tonight. And they all burst out <laughs> laughing right now. Of course, the, luckily the pilot got it under control and they landed. They all sat, but they were laughing while they were, they were crashing in the helicopter. So dopamine is also a hack into courage. I just, we just talked about courage, right? And when we, when we step into our fear, we get a dopamine hit. Well, laughing gives us a dopamine hit as well. So this is why we've, and I'm sure the three of us have had this experience. We can be, we can be scared. We can feel fear. Someone will make us laugh and we'll feel okay, right? We'll feel better. We'll feel yeah. more courage, right? Because it's a hack. So it's that important. I say, you know, if a, if a team, uh, honor your class clowns, the, the people who tell the jokes, right? You don't have to be one, right? You just have to be able to laugh. But every team needs at, le at least a couple class clowns, the people who will make us laugh. It's also why it's one of the most desired qualities that people look for in a partner, right? Because it tells, it's a signal that that person is going to help us through, going to get us through. They're going to make me feel good when times are down. So yeah, it's, it's really important. I found in probably the most high pressure, high stress environments that I've operated in the past, actually humor for that moment just totally depressurizes the whole environment. And actually, right. it brought clarity of thought. It brought me that moment to think about something else as opposed to that when you are getting stressed and you start to feel that fear and you start to get your dry mouth. You know, those moments of laughter just buy you that moment of clarity. You're absolutely right. Because remember, when we're starting to feel afraid, our conscious mind is starting to go offline. That's what the amygdala response is starting to bring our conscious mind offline. So as soon as as soon as we laugh, we hack into this system that basically puts a blocker on that amygdala, but brings our conscious mind back online and suddenly we're more clear. So you're absolutely 100% right. The final attribute I really wanted to discuss with you, and I think you're one of the only people that I've ever heard mention this in a very positive way, and that's narcissism. Yes. Can you talk to us about narcissism and the relationship in high performance? This came up in the drive category. The question I had to ask myself was, what are the attributes that make up the driven person? Okay. In kind of examining that question, part of that examination included my willingness to step back and ask myself, why did I become a Navy SEAL in the first place? Right. And so I, when you asked me that question at the beginning of this podcast, I gave you a nice long lengthy answer, which is cool. And the truth, of course, but ultimately it boiled down to, I wanted to see if I could be a badass. And I would say most SEALs would say that, you know, hey, I just wanted to see if I could do something that very few people could do. Yeah. Um, and I think both of you could relate to that in, in terms of the, the things you've done, right? Narcissism, 
um, at its core, okay, is simply the desire to stand out, be adored, and be recognized. That's what it is at its core. Now, obviously, there's narcissistic personality disorder, okay? That is a disordered version of this, right? That is a full-blown, bad, malicious-type disorder, okay? But but that core quality is actually quite human. And, and this also gets back to our neurology, right? When we're being paid attention to as babies, as infants, okay, we're being adored, okay? We're getting bursts of dopamine again. There it is again. We're getting serotonin, which is another bonding uh, neurotransmitter, and we're getting oxytocin again, okay? So we're getting bursts of those three chemicals when we're being adored as infants. This doesn't change when we're adults. When we are adored and, and, and we stand out, we're social, we feel those chemicals, right? So, so what we have to understand is that everybody, every human being at some point in their lives wants to stand out, be adored, and be recognized. It might not be the rock star or the Navy SEAL or the pilot. It might be, I just want to be known as a great dad or I want to, you know, we all want to be, feel special at some point, right? And so, so this is a very natural thing and it has narcissistic tendencies in it. And so the reason why I put this as an attribute is because when metabolized correctly, this is the impetus for audacious goals. I mean, how else does someone want to be a Navy SEAL or a, or the best pilot or the best surgeon or whatever, whatever they, whatever that audacious goal is. How else does that generate unless for not a, a little bit of narcissism there? I think it's, it's a call to action to recognize our own narcissism and metabolize it. But in recognizing it, we can metabolize it in a, in a, in a healthy way. Uh, and then, of course, it comes with a warning. I mean, because it can go in a malicious state. It can get too much. The way you inoculate yourself against getting overboard on narcissism is to surround yourself with people who you love and who you trust, who tell you the truth and keep you grounded. Every single narcissist out there who's like, who has the, every, everybody who's disordered, right? The, the, the narcissistic personality disorder, the way you, one of the ways you tell that is you look at the people surrounding them because they will surround themselves with sycophants and people who basically all they do is, is look and praise that person. That group will be transient because no, you know, you can't stay a sycophant for too long. And as soon as someone leaves that group, that person becomes enemy number one. Okay. Because that person is no longer Bank paying homage, right? So we can tell it by the group. The way we do this for ourselves is we make sure we surround ourselves with people who they're telling us the truth. We're not always the center of attention. We're letting them be the center. It's a, it's a very balanced thing. They're keeping us, you know, kind of from getting out over our skis. And in, in the process, we're still achieving these goals. I would say most, I mean, almost every famous person, whether it be singer or actor that you see who seems just very, very well grounded, is because they actually have surrounded themselves with people who tell them the truth. When they go home, they're just Bob or <laughs> or Tom or or whatever it is. I mean, they're just whoever they are, and they need that, and that keeps them grounded. And so, so we can keep ourselves grounded. We can still use narcissism in a, in a healthy way. Obviously, we're a global podcast, but we're based here in the UK. And one thing we hold close to our hearts, because the mystery behind it, are our special forces, and mainly the SAS and the SBS. Have you got stories where you worked alongside them and, and operated with them and tell hopefully our UK listeners about their, their high <laughs> skill level and that you actually enjoyed I, working yeah, alongside I, those men. One of my buddies, who in fact, we were just texting yesterday is Dean Stott. He wrote a book. Uh, he's a he's an author out there. He was an SA, SBS guy and he, he rode his bike after getting out. He actually, he was, he got injured and so he had to get out of the service early, but he ended up riding his bike from the tip of South America all the way up to Canada. His book, I think it's Relentless, great book out there. But anyway, um, so he and I were together in Texas doing an event together during the summer. 
we were reminiscing how fun it always was. We worked with a lot of SBS guys and SAS guys. It was always fun, but the, what was so weird about it was we're all the same. I mean, it's the same personality. Now, in the Brit-American case, it's just a slight different accent, right? But even the German, the German comp swimmers um, or the, the French commando Uber, right? Those guys are exactly the same. They just talk in German and French, right? I mean, but we are the, it's the same personality. We laugh at the same shit. We roughhouse, we drink. It's always, it was always fun. And we got to work with those guys uh, quite a bit. And we always loved it. And on a fun note, you know, the Americans overseas had this general order. It's called general order number one. We weren't allowed to drink any alcohol, right, while we were deployed. And so, of course, you know, I remember being in Afghanistan and, and the, you guys were down in Kandahar and we, we, we ended up going down there for a few weeks to do some operations and it ended up being over the holidays, right? And so, so we got to spend Christmas and New Year's with the Brits at the Brit bar <laughs> and actually got to, got to have <laughs> of course some, there was one had, had to, yeah had to, got to have some beers uh you know because as Americans we didn't we couldn't take that with us but all the units are so congruent they're all they're all awesome to work with we all loved working with each other I think it was always very comforting to have guys that were, were so in tune with us and yeah. they were from different parts of the world it was cool it, was it seems so like there's no scarcity or competition amongst you guys it was there was just a mutual level of respect and how can we build each other up well yeah i mean you got to think about it i mean competition in that vein is you know is fair uh, competition between the other each other other than to get better once in a while so yeah, let's do a shooting competition so we get better shots is only useful to an extent i mean the the you're in an environment that will kill you on so many levels. And so the idea is to be the best you can as a group, right? There's no sense of, hey, I want to be better than this person. Or I, want to, I want to go past. It's all about, hey, how can I work with each other? How can we work with each other in the most effective, most dynamic, most dangerous way so that we bring to bear what we need to bring against this environment that is out to kill us? Because again, you have the environment of the enemy who are shooting bullets sometimes. Then you have the environment of the environment. I mean, one thing about the ocean is if you turn your back on the ocean for one second, it will kill you, right? As will a high mountain or a lower temperature. I mean, the, the environment will kill you as fast as a bullet if you're not careful. And the ocean certainly is that case too. So, so you know, talk about, you know, people say, well, how does SEALs or special forces and special operations remain humble? And I would say there are some very arrogant guys, but it's not the norm. Um, and the reason is because the environment humbles you every single day. It really does. I mean, you cannot be cocky against the ocean. I mean, that you, you will get crushed, right? And you cannot be cocky against a bullet coming down range, regardless of who it was fired from. I used to say, and you know, we'd do stuff in Africa, which is it's always unfortunate to see some of the stuff that went on there, but you'd have like nine-year-old kids running around with AK-47s, you know, and I used to tell, tell my guys like, hey, you got to remember that, you know, a bullet fired from the AK-47 of a nine-year-old kid will kill a 30-year-old Navy SEAL just as fast as any other bullet, right? And it has no, and that there's no bearing on how tough and strong you are, what training you've been. We have to be cognizant of that fact, right? So, mm. so it's about remaining humble. And I think the humility that you find between all the units has always been inspiring. Love that. I think that's one thing actually that I pulled from your episode, Dan, was that the humble and credible bit. It seems like everybody's in the high performance, in those proper high performance environments where it really does matter. Being humble is is one of those attributes that it's pushed aside a lot of the time, maybe in the corporate world or something else. But when it really matters, being humble is one of the most important assets to have. Rich, before we go, is there any other gems or, I mean, performance hacks or insights that you can share that maybe you haven't discussed already with us? 
I think in the context the three of us have talked about, we talked a little bit about, you know, guys transitioning from one career to, to another career. And I think one of the things I will say that I had to learn, and I think is something that everybody should be understanding of, is that when we leave something that we're so used to doing and go into something else, it is literally like jumping off the top of a mountain into a muddy valley and having to climb your way out again, right? Now, the good news is a lot of us are good at doing that. The bad news is we didn't really want to do it <laughs> or we didn't, we didn't expect to be doing it later, this late in life. But again, it's part of the process. And I think one of the things we have to understand is, well, two couple things we have to understand is that, you know, I, I'm always kind of saying, hey, you know, it's always important to be resolute in your outcome, but be flexible in your approach. Which means, you know, if we take the rock climbing analogy, you know, the, the rock climber looks at the, at the face of the cliff or whatever or the, or the mountain says, okay, the top is where I'm going. Okay. And, and perhaps even maps out a mental pathway uh, that he or she is going to take. But they know that the only way they can actually figure it out is to start climbing. And when they start climbing, as they climb, inevitably, they're going to realize that the pathway that they actually saw mapped out is not the best foothold or handhold. So they're going to have to find another one. Sometimes the best one is like down and to the right, okay, which means sometimes it's going to feel like we're moving away from our goal because we're trying to get a better foothold to get to our goal in the first place, right? That is how this is going to feel as we're transitioning. It is going to feel sometimes like we lose sight of the mountaintop or we're moving away. As long as we're resolute in the fact that we're being flexible in our approach and knowing that, hey, so a lot of times the very first thing we do coming out of a career like this is probably not going to be the same thing we're doing two years or three years on the road. And just know, hey, where do I want to go? We're going to be okay. We've done this before, and we just have to do it in a different context. And the number one attribute that's required to do it in a different context is courage. And we all, coming from our backgrounds, know what that means. Rich, we always like to finish the show off with a quick fire questions. Hopefully you haven't heard these before, so we can try and stitch you up on the spot. The first one is one piece of advice you would tell your younger self before starting out. Yeah, that's a great one. And the way I answer that is unlike most people, and that is I wouldn't tell myself anything, right? I would be, I truly believe that we, that I am here because of every single mistake I've made. And I would be deathly afraid that if I said something to my younger self, uh, it would change the trajectory of my life. And that, and you know, it's kind of like the butterfly effect, right? And I, I would not want that to happen. I'd love to go back and look, you know, but I'd stay mute. Love it. Uh, do you have a mantra or a belief that has enabled your high performance life? Ask better questions. We are question answering machines. When we ask ourselves a question, uh, our brain immediately starts to answer it, right? And so, uh, so a lot of the times we make the mistake of doing this the wrong way. We say, why am I so bad at this? Why does this always have to me? Why are they all out to get me, right? They, we will get answers. Our brain will start to populate with answers. It is guaranteed. I learned this trick in high school that if we change the quality of our questions, the quality of our life changes. And I am really a believer that the quality of our life is directly proportional to the quality of questions we ask ourselves on a consistent basis. Ask things like, how can I get better? What am I good at? Who's out there that can help me? You will get answers to those. Right? So take conscious control of your questions and ask better ones. I love that. That answer alone is probably worth listening to this podcast just on its own. <laughs> can I just say, I froze for a moment there because you said ask better questions. I thought you were directing that at me. I, oh, I, that, was a, that was a slight moment of panic. That is actually hilarious <laughs> that you thought that. But, uh, no, that was a great question. So, um, Third one, one essential habit you can't live without. It's going to sound really hokey, but hugging my wife and kids, like, you know, I am a, you know, love language wise, I'm a touch feel guy. And so my kids and my wife, they get bombarded by that every day. I have to have that. That's, uh, that was the hardest part about deploying was, was being away from them. So that's the habit for me. I think it'd probably be, you know, different for anybody asked. 
I love the fact that we make a former US Navy SEAL answered with that as well. That that gives everybody permission to, <laughs> yeah. to go. It's really special, yeah. isn't it? It's pretty special. Uh, and finally, we are making a pod playlist that we hope people will take on into these high-performing lives that they're, they're living. So do you have a go-to tune that to set you up, get you in the plane when you need to get up and go? Uh, Metallica is my number one favorite band in the world. And there's several reasons for that. I know, you know, they're also probably the number one band in the world too. But it's because I love their the speed with which and the precision with which they play. So a lot of my favorite stuff is probably the older stuff, the the Master of Puppets and and Justice for All things like that. And I think for some reason I love precision aggression, like like fast precise aggression, right? And I think this is one of the reasons why I like being a SEAL is because the ability to run into a room and every single time you squeeze your finger on the trigger, it's meaningful. Right. You, t- you can take three shots within a millisecond and they're all placed exactly where I want to place them. That type of precision I like. And I think met- a lot of Metallica's songs and <laughs> music is like a musical representation of that. I mean, you can hear every single chug on the E chord and it's just I just love it. Right. That, that that's usually my go to. I am very diverse in the music I like, but I always anchor back to Metallica. Love that. I wish I had that precision aggression with my landings as well, but uh, obviously. <laughs> yeah, my brother's a pilot. And he says the same thing. So, yeah, he tries his best, but sometimes, yeah. Ritz, thank you so much for your time today. It's been an absolute pleasure and completely eye-opening. Uh, before we go, where can people find you? And um, can you tell them a little bit more about your book and where they could go? Because I think you've got a free assessment that they can, they can use as well, right? Yeah, best place is theattributes.com. And there on the website, you can, you can learn about the book. And there's some links to get the book. And the book is anywhere books are sold. But yes, we also have an assessment tool on the website that's free, and you can basically get a readout, some scores on where you fall on the grid attributes, the mental acuity attributes, and the drive attributes. And so again, this is a snapshot for people. If they take the assessment, answer introspectively, and then get these scores, and then say, okay, how does this feel for me? It just gives you a sense of of where you might fall. So that's for free. We have some workbooks on there that people can get to learn how to develop certain attributes. And then we have some more stuff coming as we go. And if you want to contact us in terms of speaking or consulting or things like that, theattributes.com is the best place. Thanks again, Rich. It's been absolutely amazing. Well, Legends, I do hope you enjoyed that session. And with that in mind, you know, I'm still really early on in this journey to creating the most impactful and practical podcast out there. But like anything that's world-class, it really does require a two-way communication, that sort of collaboration and feedback from you to help me mold and create the show. So I'm really open to hearing any thoughts you've got on what challenges you'd like answering, who you want to hear from on the show, or even the format of the show itself. Just reach out on the usual socials that I've buried somewhere in the show notes and I'll get back to you. It's really time for us to start living outside of our average again. So until next time, 